You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. On with the show. So it's holiday season, and holiday season means everyone who loves video games can now experience driving like it's a video game because Tesla has opened up their full self-driving beta test, threaten everyone around you to everyone. Everyone who has a Tesla can now pay $15,000 and explore the world of full self-driving beta software that doesn't work and has trouble making left turns, right turns, lane changes, doesn't understand stop signs, traffic lights, may cause incontinence, may cause irritable bowel syndrome, and all sorts of other things. Uh, And this is really bad because as we've learned, um, over half of the U.S. population thinks that cars can drive themselves. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're all on board with this, right? Well, yeah, I, um, you know, there's a significant slice of the population that, that believes they should get paid for work. And it's it's interesting that Tesla's inverted that model and suggest to people that they have to pay Tesla money in order to become a Tesla test driver. I, You know, you, 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 you've got to hand it to Elon. He's really turned this whole financial model inside out. I, I agree. I mean, that's I, I, just one of his many approaches to to business. It's brilliant, Michael. Yeah, I, I the timing of this is just highly suspicious to me. I mean, we've seen some of the recent Musk financial issues involving Twitter and things, and to expand this to everyone at once just looks like a cash grab and. I don't expect anything good to come out of it other than a lot more reports to NHTSA in the standing general order from crashes. I mean, I, I just can't see an upside to this um, for anyone outside of Tesla's uh, pocketbook. So you're more of the glasses half empty kind of guy. No, <laughs> I'm more of a, I, you know, I, we've seen problems with the autopilot stuff. We've seen problems with full self-driving, which is an absolute joke of a name and a lie. Um, these cars do not drive themselves. Everyone listen to podcasts, do not believe what they are called full self-driving. That's not what they are. Um, they do have some driver assistance capabilities, but you damn well better be watching your wheel and your pedals and staying in control of the vehicle, because if not, you're, you might end up dead. Um, and it's the way these things have been marketed and sold. I mean, to me, they're, you know, half-assed robots posing as self-driving cars, and they're basically luring people who are willing to be led along by the nose by Mr. Musk into, uh, tragic situations and also dragging innocent people along with them. Um, so we think, you know, frankly, I think NHTSA needs to shut the whole project down um they're moving incredibly slowly on tesla i mean we heard there's a criminal investigation the doj but that's not doing anything to people that are going to be killed and maimed by this stuff in the meantime so i you know i i I can't really put into words how disappointed i am with the entire situation and some of it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast involving some of the uh fanboyism that goes along with with musk and tesla and a lot of these folks just seem to be Living in a world of fantasy, 
uh, involving the capabilities of their vehicles. And I just don't want to see the rest of us who don't buy the line of bullshit dragged into it. Yeah, because that's the thing that people don't seem to realize is that this is not just affecting you as the quote unquote driver. It's everything around you. It's every other vehicle around you that doesn't have this and doesn't realize that you're, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a maniac letting your car drive itself down the highway at 65 miles per hour. Well, not just the cars. It's also the pedestrians and the bicyclists and everybody else that happens to be within the you know, immediate vicinity of, of these cars, unguided missiles, basically. Right. Um, There's an article I didn't send around to you guys this week. I think it was in the Washington Post or uh, the Guardian talking about um how Tesla owners are getting upset because people are heckling them on the road. I, I don't saw suggest that. you do yeah. that. <laughs> Please don't do that either. If you see a Tesla, like they're complaining about people getting uh, cutting them off, refusing to let them merge into traffic, do things like that. Like that, that doesn't make anybody safe. Don't do that, and you'll definitely cause their 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 their. Uh, no, no, no! Please don't, and treat everyone on the road as if it, if they were your grandmother, and that helps everyone. But your grandmother with a death wish. Even if your grandmother cuts you off, just it's okay. It's grandma. <laughs> Even if you're inclined to use a famous hand gesture, you can you can pick the hand gesture to be less confrontational. Right. <laughs> that that's better than smashing into a car or as i've pointed out many times in this podcast people like to drive into my trunk um just to get real close uh so uh speaking of our our self-driving cars Cruz and waymo they're pushing out more robo taxis they really want to push these things out and we've talked about in the past uh cruise is the uh gm uh, funded company that has cars go through existential crises, crises, existential crises in the middle of San Francisco streets and just kind of give up. Uh, Waymo has been uh, mapping out basically a small section of Phoenix suburbs and trying to keep their cars just in there. But now they're like, hey, you know what? Let's push this further. Let's push this into Austin, Texas. Uh, let's try and push this into Los Angeles, which is... Nuts, because again, these things not regulated um, and have been prone to be dangerous. They don't drive as well as a as your average nine year old with boxes on their shoes pushing the pedals and sitting on phone books. But at oh, the same it, time as they're expanding, other companies are pulling out. Let's note that you know Argo basically has ceased operations and they're trying to liquidate whatever remaining assets there are in Argo. Oops. And Argo is the Ford and Volkswagen right. venture. Right, right. I, mean, I think so it's that, pretty clear that, that Waymo and, and GM Cruise are leading the leading the line at this point. Um, anyone that suggests Tesla is, uh, is, is one of the fantasy believers I was referring to earlier. Um, they're not even close, particularly until they get their sensors straight and until they – They've got a lot of work to do. We'll put it that way. But but Waymo and Cruise, you know, they they have not been on our safety radar as far as incidents taking place. Um, 
you know, we're continuing to be a little skeptical. They're obviously, you know, they're doing this slowly and in a way, you know, they're geofencing the technology to certain areas where they think it works and they think it's going to be safe. And that's kind of how we want this to go. Although we would prefer there to be a lot more transparency in, in, in what the technology is and how it's performing these tasks so that the public can be assured that it's working properly. But, um, the Ford and and them they're pulling out because I I mean I would suggest that 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 Waymo and Cruise are already so far ahead that you know I think that they see a future in licensing that type of technology versus developing developing it themselves. So are these companies looking to get into the really get into a self driving taxi service? Are they looking to have this technology kind of trickle down to consumer vehicles? You know, they we keep hearing that that's what's going to happen. And even some of the legislation that's been proposed around it over the years suggests that, you know, thousands to hundreds of thousands of these vehicles could be coming out and sold to consumers at some point. I am currently after, you know, after we talked with Dr. Copeman and after talking with Fred a lot about this and other folks, I just don't know that the average person can maintain a vehicle in the state it needs to be to operate properly as a autonomous self-driving vehicle the sensor calibration and everything seems like it's going to have to be working at peak a level and i don't think most people are capable of keeping their vehicles maintained and calibrated properly i don't think the software is there that does it for them yet um, if such a software exists. So there's a lot of challenges that would prevent that scenario from taking place in the next couple of decades, in my opinion. Well, there's also no infrastructure in place for state inspections of um, safety critical features that are embedded in the self-driving system. That's a very important part of that because, as Michael pointed out, people don't always do everything that the cars need to have done. That's what the state inspections are for, to make sure that the cars all have some minimum standard of safety capability before they're allowed on the on the highways. Um, I think the task of setting up that system and upgrading all of the state inspection facilities so that they can do that kind of intrusive digital analysis uh, is a big hurdle. That's a That's a big push. Um, I also want to point out that Waymo and um, Google are both going after the heavy truck market. They believe that there is a, a enormous market for basically turning interstate highways into railroads and going with with what they call platoon vehicles, which means you've got one driver with several trucks following. And so there's a big focus on doing that. So, you know, where you've got this 40-ton truck rolling down the highway with, with a driver, which is kind of scary enough. Uh, imagine having four or five different trucks following that along based upon the inputs it's getting just from this one self-driving vehicle with an individual human being, perhaps, in the cab of the first truck, Wait, keeping well, track of that whole convoy. That sounds like I-81. <clears throat> well, yeah, except I-81 with no human drivers. Right. It sounds like Mad Max. How, how big are these 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 semis? Because I remember, I think it was in the the late '80s, there was this big push um, that the trucking industry wanted to have um, uh, basically three of those 
trailers on the back of an 18 wheeler. And there's a big push. I mean, safety advocates against this because I mean, uh, honestly, you know, I get nervous at times when an 18 wheeler comes up next to me because, you know, the car starts shaking a little bit more or they can, they're, they're a big vehicle. They've just blocked out the sun. And I don't think I've ever seen one of the, the triple trailers on it. So, um, how, how big are you talking these platoon type things? Are well, you the companies want them as, as big as they possibly can. They're, what they're trying to do is compete with the railroads. Now, if you think of a train, right, you've got a couple of people on board the train, and you've got a mile, mile and a half long uh, sequence of cars that can carry enormous amounts of freight. This makes it very difficult for the trucking companies to compete on bulk commodities like coal and you know other geological other uh fuels that you're going to extract geologically right so if they can go ahead and turn the highways into effectively railroads and put these very long trains of vehicles on the highway without paying for human beings to drive them um that will dramatically increase their profits so that's, and they're that's not, where they're the not push is coming from. The underlying, I guess they're not contributing to the underlying infrastructure in a way. I, I don't know. There's, there's a, it, it must be cheaper to do it on the highways if they're trying to do this than to keep shipping by train. But train to me seems like exactly what they're trying to achieve with these platoons, which would be going from one hub to another hub, at which point the goods are offloaded. So I don't know. It's, it's, well, there's an advantage to doing it on the highways because all of us who are not truckers are paying right. for the highways. Yes. So they can out, you know, if you can outsource the cost of your roadbed and your transportation system, you got to be a lot better off. So, Michael, was I correct with the the in the late '80s the the triple trailers? Is, did that get squashed? Or did I that got squashed? There are you would see double trailers for a while. Um, but I believe one of the one of the issues there is not just the weight and the crashes. It's um, it's a it, it is a whole lot to get a triple trailer around. I mean, coming from me, I've tried to back up a boat or, or a couple of trailers in my life, and that's not easy for the average person. Now, even for a highly skilled operator, three trailers lined up like that in an emergency or crash situation seems like a really uh, a disaster waiting to happen. The lack of control there. Um, so that was pushed back on heavily and that was probably a little before my time at the center. I believe that was in the late nineties. Uh, I thought it was earlier than that. Um, either way, Hey, listener, now's a good time. If you haven't donated, now's a good time to go to autosafety.org. Just pause, pause the show just for a second. Just pause it. We're not going anywhere because you can control time right now. It's fascinating. Autosafety.org. Click the red donate button. And now back to the show. Um, let's go into um, let, let's go into the, the the Tao of Fred. How does that sound today? You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Yeah, I, I like that. I always like that idea. <laughs> Do you now? Now this is the part of the show that Michael and I get to take a nap in. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> today we're going to talk about semiconductors, microelectronics, and dinosaur reliability. Hmm. No, dinosaur chips. And Michael introduced that term to me, and I, I Googled it. And, and right now I'm looking for an ad for a New York Chips Dinosaur Barbecue. Uh, I, I, are you really that big a fan of fried kale, Michael, or is there something else on your mind? I could I could go for fried kale, but it always seems 
exorbitantly expensive for what you're getting when it's dried versus buying it in the grocery. So I've avoided the kale trap so far. (laughs) There's another chance. Anyway, well, so I I guess I'm I'm intuiting that. um, And by the way, that that brings me up another conversation. But you know, people sometimes talk. I was talking with somebody about uh, self-driving cars over the holiday, and he said, "Well, you know, they're great. They don't." They don't get drunk. They don't get tired. They're wonderful things. And, and, and I realized they're it's always drunk, true, but, <laughs> but they don't intuit and they don't understand. And they, you know, they, they don't, but anyway, that's a digression. I'll get back Look, to dinosaur chips here. Toddlers don't drink either, but they couldn't pass a field sobriety test too. True. True enough. All right. So why do chips become obsolete? And, you know, and why do, why is there that the problem with what Michael called dinosaur chips that they're coming obsolete? Um, and there's a lot of reasons, but basically they're all market driven. So what happens is technology moves on and sometimes the supporting electronics do not move on as fast as the technology. So for example, when NASA was flying the space shuttle, they built the space shuttle around an Intel 8086 chip. Well, that went out of production uh, long before the space shuttle stopped flying. So they actually at one point had to resort to going to eBay to get 8086 chips so that they could maintain some of the infrastructure associated with the space shuttle. Now, that's an extreme example, but other things happen, like people will replace discrete components, which you use in an early stage of of a circuit production with surface mount electronics. What's important about that is that they have a, a very different set of connections to the printed circuit board. So what you had done with a discrete device, even though functionally it's the same as a surface mount electronics, you've got to redesign the packaging so that you can fit it into this new, more comp- uh, more compressed circuit board. So that happens all the time. And when you go back and you try to resurrect something that was broken, you've got to use the same chips with the same capability, the same plan form. Uh, it's often not, often simply not available. <clears throat> you've also got durability issues with the chips. They wear out after a while. Um, you've got environmental considerations. Sometimes a newer chip will have different electronic sensitivity, different static electricity sensitivity, for example, than a previous generation of chips. Um, it's very expensive for a company to put together the entire process that results in production of a chip. And so they're always going after the new high volume chips. So is this why, is this when they talk about the chip shortage in cars right now, is this what the issue is? It's, there's a shortage of these older generation chips. I'm not sure, but the, the biggest problem they've had is that the staffing in the factories that are making the chips was affected by COVID. And so um, <clears throat> their supply chain was also affected. <clears throat> when you've got a big factory that's putting out chips, you need to have a lot of inputs. You need to have very pure silicon. It has to be produced in the right in the right way with the right polish. You've got a lot of photographic components. They're called the... the uh, the masks that they use to generate the different layers of chemicals. You've got all the chemicals that go into the 
uh, manufacture the chips. Uh, for example, you, you don't just go out and buy a vat of dysprosium at the, at the, your local Walmart. You know, there's there's a supply chain, sophisticated supply chain associated with all these components. That all fell apart during the the COVID era because all of the companies had been designing around this just in time supply system where you don't hold inventory. You've got inputs coming in all the time. They arrive just at the right moment. So you can put them into your production scheme. Everything rolls along like topsy. Uh, and that's great until it fails. And then once it fails, it's really hard to put the pieces back together. So that's, that's more characteristic of what happened. And it's really not the dinosaur chip problem or the obsolete chip problem that, that Michael uh, suggested we talk about today. <clears throat> There's another problem that happens when you are dealing with older chips, which is that you often have to go to a broker in order to get them. Brokers don't have the same supply requirements, the same quality requirements as the original equipment manufacturers. And there have been, <clears throat> excuse me, many instances of counterfeit chips which have entered the market being sold by brokers. The chips sometimes have some of the capabilities of the chips that they're supposed to replace. Sometimes they have very little. Sometimes it's very difficult to find exactly what the difference is between the chip that you want from the original equipment manufacturer and the sophisticated counterfeit. Because some of the chips will have up to 64 contacts on them and if you want to check all the functionality of the chip, you've got to load it with software. You've got to test all of these different 64 uh, contacts, all the different combinations and permutations of that. It gets to be an enormous number of tests. So it's relatively easy for somebody to slip in a counterfeit chip, charge 10 or 100 times as much as their actual cost for the chip, and still come out at a price lower than if you had to go back to the manufacturer and ask them to resume production. This is a big problem for the military because they often have special requirements for chips. And so they'll have small lots for chips that they need for high security applications, for very high acceleration applications. Um, very difficult and expensive for them to get it. It's less true for the car manufacturers because they often buy in huge quantities. They don't necessarily have the very expensive and very high capability chips and the microchips in their vehicles. Sometimes you're better off to use a redundant circuit to provide reliability than you are to buy the very high quality chip that would be required to give you the same reliability with a single component. So you hear a lot of talk about redundancy and that's really what redundancy is all about. Using multiple paths, multiple logical paths with less expensive circuitry than a single path with very expensive components that you can put in there. But again, with those very high, uh, high cost components, you're opening yourself up to counterfeit exposure, right. um, which is bad. Okay. So, so one, one, and they're like between, uh, you know, around 1500 to 4,000 separate semiconductors in a car. So, when you think about the supply chain for, you know, all the differing types of chips that one car might have, it sounds like, you know, it, it, that's a pretty good explanation for why we saw the problems we saw with vehicles and sales, both new and used during COVID. Um, the supply chain collapsed. Right, right. And once it collapses, it's, it's hard to get it put back together because 
ideally you want everything running in synchronicity, right? You want everything to be developed and delivered at, the, at the, exactly the right time with exactly the right number of components so that you can minimize your inventory if you're producing this stuff. Very so, difficult to get it back. So wh why aren't auto manufacturers looking at combining instead of having these 1,000, 4,000 semiconductors, reducing it down to just a, a handful of more modern processors? I, I think it comes down to they don't want to pay Intel to do it um or expense i mean that's when you ask a question about why manufacturers aren't doing something usually the answer is money um and i think in this case you know you the the, the phrase dinosaur chip i'm not sure if it was coined by him but i believe it was the ceo of intel that was saying you know basically i'm sitting here waiting for the manufacturers to come to us and ask us for our good chips but they just continue to use their dinosaur chips yeah. um so that's that's probably the issue. They they want to produce the chips themselves. They don't want to outsource it. Who knows? Um, I know that there are manufacturers that are investing in in their own chip manufacturing um, groups, but I, I don't know if there's a good um, Fred. Do you think that um, there's a good alternative? For these kind of chips, there's, you know, there's 1,400 to 4,000 again in your vehicle spread out. They all have to be, I assume, sealed in some way to prevent, you know, whether all the things we go through in our cars, heat, cold, salty roads, um, any other sort of events that seems like they would damage a, a, a computer or a, or a chip. Is, is that a concern? It is a concern, and different kinds of packaging are suitable for different kinds of applications. <clears throat> you have ceramic packaging, and you have plastic packaging, you have epoxy potting. Um, so there's, yeah, that's a big concern. And the car is actually a pretty challenging environment. You've got all the environmental considerations associated with cars being used in, you know, all the way from Alaska down to the tropics, right? And so there's a lot, a lot of temperature considerations. Over time, temperature cycles degrade the electronics. So that's clearly an issue. But, you know, the car companies have environmental requirements that they put on their, their suppliers. I don't think there's any prospect that all of the electronics will be collapsed into one unit because as electronics become more capable, of course, the component suppliers build them into their components to make the components more appealing to the manufacturers. So, as the electronics get more dense, they also tend to get pushed out farther into the into the system engineering aspects of the vehicle overall. So you can't have them all in one place. There are also physical limits on how much you can squish the electronics. And right now they're getting very small and they're getting to the point where you've pushed the limits of use of light to develop the uh, individual components that are on the microchip surface. Because uh, you can only make them so small if you're using visible light. So you can go to ultraviolet light, which has a shorter wavelength and you get even smaller components. But you know the, the, the manufacturers are running up against those limits because the individual components are getting very small. You can also go to hybrid circuits. You can stack them up in three dimensions. There's, there's a lot of ways of increasing the density within a given footprint for the for the chips, but but there are physical limits on how much you can do with that. 
But again, That's fundamentally, the more capability you can build into an individual chip, the more likely it is to find its way into a component like a, a brake system or a you know an air handling unit or some part of the car that can then be integrated more uh, sophisticated with more sophisticated software into the overall car operations. Uh, one example, there, I don't know if you've ever seen the BMWs with the little louver valves and their exhaust pipes, because managing the back pressure on your engine is one way of increasing the um, efficiency, the overall efficiency of the combustion of the fuel. So some of the BMWs that I've seen have little louver valves in their mufflers to maintain the back pressure in the exhaust system a little bit better than it can otherwise. Well, if somewhere there's got to be a controller for that system, right? And if you were a smart manufacturer, you'd build that into your unique offering so that BMW would only buy it from you. You'd be the only company that can source that. So you'd have two wires coming in from their computer. You've got your own computer built into it. And then you've got a, a servo motor that's running this little valve or whatever. That's just one example of, of, of the, the advantage, the commercial advantage that a supplier can have by taking this high-density electronics, building it to their own components. You can also imagine as we get into AVs, the LIDARs, the radars, all of those sophisticated sensors would all perhaps like to have a lot of capability built into the sensor component itself because number one, it'll work better. Number two, it's also an entry barrier for the competition because the competition would have to have similar kinds of sophisticated capability once the unit has been accepted for the design of the car. Makes uh, aftermarket aftermarket components very difficult to provide. This is, you know, of course, another issue with AVs and electronic vehicles in, in general, the aftermarket replacements for these very sophisticated components. But that's a discussion for another day. Sure. So as a consumer, like, should I be concerned that my car has dinosaur chips in it? Or is this more of, um, you know, a little inside baseball and more for the OEMs to, to worry about? At what point? As your car gets older, as your car gets older, yeah. you need to be concerned about it. Um, one of the carpenters working on my house <laughs> saw his computer on his old pickup truck depolarized somehow. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. But it's basically killed his truck. He can't get the components that are required to get his computer up and running again. The software has not been maintained by the manufacturer, so he, he can't get that software reloaded into the truck. And uh, it's been several months now. It's been sitting in a repair shop waiting for these digital components to be provided to him so he can get his stinking truck running again. So it's so bricked. So it's like driving around on a 15-year-old laptop type thing where the software, good luck trying to find updates for it, any of the components, it's all been replaced because it's you know 15 years old. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Oh, okay, so this is, a, this is a much larger issue than just the auto industry itself too. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, oh. it's, it's a natural uh, occurrence that's, happen because cars are turning to computers on wheels i mean we're going to start having the same problems that computers do yeah, add those to add those to the pile <laughs> yeah it, sure. it's it it's something we never think about and it's something you guys have opened my mind to it's it's 
when you have a car, you figure, oh, I mean, because I've seen cars that are, you know, built in the 1950s. They're still on the road. They run around and they drive. And you just think, oh, a car lasts a long time. A car is like an old school refrigerator that you buy one once and it will last you your lifetime. And that's not the case. Any well, how old is your how old is your iPhone? I don't have an iPhone. I have mm. a, a some sort of Android thing. One of those people. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a well, two year cycle with mine. Yeah. That's no, fine. I mean I have a stack of old phones here. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and you turn over your phone every two, three, five years, something like that. Right. And your car is probably a lot older than your phone. <clears throat> right. Right. Huh. Now, as they go to as they go to new software, what happens is they take advantage of the technology to put, for example, electronic RAM on the same chip as the microprocessor, which collapses two packages into one, makes things run a lot faster. So if you're writing software for this new chip that has the electronic RAM physically attached to the microprocessor, you can take advantage of the features that run much faster than if you have that electronic RAM on a separate chip connected by copper, you know, somewhere on the board. So if you are a smart programmer, you're going to write the software to take advantage of all these high-speed features on a consolidated chip. So when you, Anthony, go to, to you know, upgrade your vehicle, what you find is that the new software has been written for this enhanced capability of this advanced chip and you try to feed it into the old system, you get all kinds of timing problems because, you know, the, the component is physically farther away. It doesn't operate as fast as the integrated chip. So the software just won't work anymore. This, you know, remember we talked once about the Arion 5 that uh, went into the ocean because they tried to put 16-bit signal into an 8-bit memory, right? And you think they'd catch that, but but they didn't. Some of these are very subtle, hard to find. But that was an example of a catastrophic failure caused by the manufacturer's inability or, or oversight in failing to look at that very, you know, small technical feature. Hmm. Well, with, with computers being cars, I think this is a, a good transition to this fascinating article about um, be careful when you get your computer repaired. Because the people in repair shops are creepy dudes who will download all of your data and look at it, especially if you're a female. Um, so th the issue is that, you know, you go into, uh, I don't know, Best Buy or wherever someplace and say, hey, my computer doesn't work. Or even, you know, the Genius Bar. And they basically now have full access to your entire computer. And everybody knows what you have on your computer is your entire life, including those dirty, dark little secrets you don't want to talk about. Um and so people are making copies of this. So the question we have is your car now being a computer tracks a bunch of telemetric data on you. I mean, there's cases of cars recording audio that you say inside your vehicle, capturing video inside. When I bring in my car to the dealership, is the dealer downloading this, you know, and watching me sing along poorly to, to Madonna songs? Um, watching me why there's spittle on the inside of my windshield as I scream at Tesla drivers. Um, what can we do? Well, do you think there are any regulations on that? Oh, come Why? 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 Come on. I, uh, there's no regulations on anything, it seems. You know, it's it's come up. This issue's come up before, I believe, the 
auto manufacturers raised it in the right to repair area. They were saying that allowing independent repairs to um, dig into their software is going to result in people getting stalked uh, and that there something along those lines, but there was a threat created there. Um, and, you know, obviously it's probably going to happen. And that's, you know, a reason why we think that privacy protection should be something that are looked at and included in the cybersecurity regulations. Um, we've talked before about how they've issued, and we've also talked about the theft protection side of this, where some, some theft protection can be improved by a cybersecurity regulation um, from the agency. So it's, becoming critical as you know once again as cars turn into computers on wheels that we get some kind of framework in to protect consumers who are having their data collected on these by these vehicles and to protect your vehicle from theft and all the consequences of stolen cars that we see daily on our roads um, among other things like uh, protecting us from mass hacking incidents uh, preventing uh, the TikTok type hacks that uh, allow uh, numbers of teenagers to take over vehicles at any at any moment. Um, there's a lot of reasons why NHTSA needs to move forward on regulations rather than just its current little, hey, we're going to sh- talk about some voluntary steps that, that you guys in the industry can take here. Um, we think consumers need to be better protected now. Brandon, did you have a thought? I, I completely agree with what Michael said. You know, and... <laughs> and uh, but, but but you know think of the uh, and this just keeps coming to my mind <clears throat> a lot of states now are passing laws prohibiting women from going to certain medical facilities and you know having certain medical procedures so you know if especially if you're a woman and you're driving around in your car you may not want your information on where you've been and and when you've been someplace to be accessible to anybody else much less a, a person who is in a repair shop who has got no reason to be looking at that data except that they may be able to get a bounty on you for you know turning you in as having been to a certain medical practice and getting certain medical procedures um, I, I think you know this is just an enormous issue and it only gets more critical as time goes on Fred, also a glass half empty kind of guy. It's that um, kind of day. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and this is a this is a very sad story. Um, uh, so Ford sent over 100 notices and even visited the home of a Ford Ranger driver killed by a Takata airbag. I can't believe Takata airbags are still a problem. Um, you know, so NHTSA has revealed that the driver of a 2006 Ford Ranger pickup was killed in a June crash because of a defective Takata airbag inflator. Um, so what, how are these things still on the road? Well, they're still on the road because there are no requirements that consumers get recalls fixed. Uh, and wait, wait, so like, wait, if I, there's a recall on my car, that's, you know, there's some of them that are like, you know, <laughs> you're that, that are minor or something like that, but something like this critical safety feature, there's no requirement on a, on a federal level or a state level that, Hey, this is a dangerous vehicle. No, no that's, you know, you no, know, Anthony, we run up against, uh, 
freedom and, and America a lot in this podcast and things like that. And this is one of those areas, you know, in Germany, if you have an open recall on your vehicle and you don't get it fixed, they'll come to your house and take your license plates off your car. Um, but, but here you just get to keep driving around on it. Now the Takata airbag, you know, it's a threat to you and your passenger more than other people on the roads, but still, um, you know, some companies have done a lot better than others, but right now we're seeing the repair rates from Takata on Takata airbags from, you know, the high seventies to the mid low 90% completion. So there's still, you know, a few million vehicles out there that are taking time bombs and their the bag could explode at any time. And we've seen the last year, I think there were three Chryslers in this Ford in the last month that have been revealed. So this is a problem that's not going away. And it's the way that the, the Takata airbag inflator defect works is that the problem becomes more likely the more um, humidity exposure that the, uh, chemicals inside the flater receive the ammonium nitrate wafers that are in there, um, allowing them to degrade and then cause this condition. So the longer you go without the repair, the greater your chances of an inflator explosion get. So it's, it's a problem that, you know, I think can only ultimately be resolved if the DOT and states work together on a way to pull these vehicles off the road using their registrations until they're repaired. Um, because right now you're we're in a we're in a situation where people could sell this sell a vehicle to someone who has no idea and they drive off and boom they're dead and we want to avoid that situation at all costs and we're we've reached a point where it's it's frustrating for us i'm sure it's frustrating for some of the manufacturers particularly in this situation where they try and they send all these you know i think 100 letters and they send a representative out to the house to encourage a repair. I know that Honda and some other manufacturers have even used mobile repair units that will literally go to people's homes and, and do it there um, because it's just so hard to get some folks, particularly on older vehicles, to to, to get their recalls repaired, even though there's a clear safety danger. Um, <clears throat> ultimately, I mean, it's hard. We think that, you know, recalls should probably be enforced a little more um, clearly on the consumer side, particularly at the state level where you have state safety inspections that could tell consumers, hey, you've got to get your recall performed. This is, you know, going to hurt you or other people on the road. I think in an ideal world, that's what we'd want. But there's a lot of pushback against that idea from people who don't want you know, I, I guess don't want to receive recalls, don't want to be told what to do. That seems to be a theme in modern America, adults not wanting to be told what to do, um, even when there's a, you know, a, a safety issue that threatens the lives of other people around you. Um, so there's pushback against the idea for making people get recalls. Um, but it sounds like a, a case where the manufacturer, like the manufacturers are trying to get this issue fixed. Yeah, I mean, they don't want to have anything to do with it because every time, even, you know, even if you don't get the recall and you have an inflator explosion and someone dies, they're going to be facing a lawsuit despite their best efforts, right? So they want to get them off the road as soon as possible. Um, it's just really hard. And this should show you how hard it is just to track down people and to get these things off the road is, is not easy. And it's because we don't make it easy, you know, as a whole Americans, we, 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 um, 
don't do a really good job making our recall appointments. And that reminds me, I need to make one for my VW non-compliance. Oh, okay, good. You should get I'm, on about, that. I'm about three weeks behind Volkswagen. Sorry. Shameful. Listeners at home, come on. You can do better than than Michael Brooks, executive director of the Center for Auto Safety, who's three weeks behind his recall. Can. Prove me wrong. Take your Takata <laughs> airbag in and get it repaired. Yeah, because in New York State, I the DMV every year sends me a notice saying, hey, you got to get your car inspected. And if my car fails the admissions vehicle, the the repair shop won't let me drive off their lot. Like they're, you know, they're not going to be like, oh, wait, you failed. Have a nice day. So why? I mean, I, yeah. I go to autosafety.org right now, pull up their make, model, year of their car and see if there's any open recalls on it. Like, it's why? craziness to me. Yeah. Like you'll get an inspection and the mm-hmm. guy will say, oh, your headlight is off by a millimeter. I can't let you pass. I need to fix it. Right. But meanwhile, you're carrying around a fuel tank that could crack and explode into flames any time because you haven't gotten your recall. Or so, you have an airbag that's expect- set to explode in your face just because. And there's, a, there's a disconnect there, really, between the federal and state levels. And some states and NHTSA, they're trying out pilot programs. Maryland has done a really good job in this area of, of letting folks know that they have open recalls at the time of registration. Um, they haven't gone, gone so far as to require them to fix them to, to get their safety, re- safety uh, inspection certificate. But that's, you know. If we're ever going to get to anywhere near 100% and in, in recall repair rates and completion rates, there's going to have to be um, some more enforcement by states in the area of safety inspection. It just occurred to me that every state safety inspection, which happens annually, um, records the VIN on your car. Wouldn't yep. that be a, a That's great That's how time? they look it up. Yeah, a, that's a how third party to doing. see if there's any open items in your car. Why? Bing, why? Bing, bing. I mean, why hasn't that happened? That can't be a genius thought. It's not. I mean, the database is available and has been available for a decade now for anyone on earth to search for an open recall in their vehicle. And so everyone should know. And when you are re-registered, you know, like Maryland does, they they alert consumers at the time of registration that they need to get their recall repaired. Um, now, what that amounts to is just another alert. You know, it's just another letter going to the consumer, um, whether or not that spurs them to actually get the vehicle in to get it repaired is another matter. And, um, you know, manufacturers even experimented with giving people gift cards, $100 gift cards, I think it was, Honda, uh, to folks who had the Takata airbag problem. And, you know, you have to incentivize people to come in and get this repair. Protecting their own life isn't enough. <laughs> so that's that's how big of a challenge it is. It's it's a giant challenge. NHTSA has been working on it slowly for many years now. We think they, they, they could have put a little more effort into recall notification provisions that they've been assigned. Um, but in the end, like many things, it comes down to, you know, individualized human behaviors and some folks just don't seem to care that their vehicles under recall. Look, if you're listening to this podcast, odds are you care. Just do a quick check, go to autosafety.org, go into the vehicle safety check, um, search for your car, see if you, there's any open recalls on it, see what you need to be done. Um, and please, if you, especially if you have a Takata AirPack, like get that thing fixed immediately. It doesn't cost you a dime. Um, and with that, let's go into the recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Um, Ford 
has a has to recall 634,000 vehicles over fuel leaks, fire risks. Uh, they've recalled hundreds of thousands of SUVs because of a cracked fuel injector. A cracked fuel injector can spill fuel or leak vapors onto a hot engine and cause fires. This sounds like one we've covered before. Is this is this a repeat? No, this came out on November 18th. Did we do this one already? Or is this just another cracked? And I think it's the second instance. The first one was a different car. I think it was a Hyundai before. Oh, right. It was a Hyundai. You're right. It was a Hyundai. Now we're on to Ford. And for those of you playing the home game, it took 45 minutes for Michael Brooks to not realize he was on mute while I tried to speak. That's a, that's, that's pretty good for me. <laughs> that was great. So, okay. what What's going on here? What's going on here is um, they're not sure completely yet. They're still investigating the root cause. What they do see is that there is liquid fuel or fuel vapor somewhere in 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 the engine. You know where it's it, that results in an underhood fire. We've seen. I think they said in the uh, chronology that there were you know about thirty fires that they've seen here and a couple of injuries. Um, but what they're doing is I can't tell it, it's not very clear from the um, submissions that Ford's made, but there's going to be a re- repair that changes some software and adds a drain to the uh, engine. I don't, it, it seems like that might be a temporary fix since they're still investigating the root cause. So if you're an owner of, you know, these are the new Broncos and the new Escapes. If you're an owner of one of those vehicles, you can probably expect a recall in the future on this, in addition to the to the engine control repair and the uh, drain tube install that they should be able to do right now. Or just call up your dealer and say, hey, this is the vehicle I have. Is this going to get recalled? Um, and find out, because you don't want your car on fire. Um, it's probably not a, a feature. And... uh in more liquid recall news, Volkswagen have to recall over a little over 50,000 vehicles for, um, uh, for as Michael describes it as kid spills his sippy cup in the back seat, vehicle enters low power mode on the interstate. So basically, if liquid reaches and enters the gateway control module located under the rear middle seat, Basically, yeah, let's let's put it right where the kid would yeah. be holding a, a drink. So <laughs> somehow the gateway control module, which sounds important, um, if it gets a little liquid on it, it's uh, it's going to break down and and uh, send your car into a bad place. It doesn't say what specific kind of vehicles, though. Oh, wait, no. Oh, a bunch of Audis, um, Audi S7s, S6s. Um, A7s, uh, A6 sedan. Uh, yeah, so if you've got an Audi, not an any, <laughs> uh, oh. my day job. Uh, if you've got an Audi and a kid in a sippy cup, or you know, uh, be careful about entering low power mode. Wait, what that one's you- that one's actually, um, kind of a proactive recall by Volkswagen in many ways, and I, I like it even though I don't like where they put the gateway control module. Um, it's what they're doing there is doing a recall based on vehicles entering low power mode. And we've seen in a lot of previous NHTSA investigations and recall cases where um, vehicles that completely stall have been considered to be a safety defect. However, 
vehicles that enter a limp home mode, which is what this sounds like, a low power mode, they're okay. Nits um, even let off the Hyundais and Kias that were catching fire because they installed a software that put the vehicle into low power mode when it sends engine knocking. So the low power mode has traditionally been considered by NHTSA to be somewhat of a safe state for the vehicle. And here we see Volkswagen recalling because the vehicle's entering that state unexpectedly. And I think any of us who have been forced into low power mode or limp home mode and or have had to drive on two flat tires on the interstate know what it feels like and know that it's probably not a safe condition and that, you know, it's, you know, it's good to see that Volkswagen is taking that into account and issuing this recall. So is low power mode, is that one step above Ferrari, um, get your car towed mode? It's yeah, it's somewhere between there and the lucid, uh, turtle mode. I think it's the turtle of death. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, our last recall is another rear view camera issue on a uh, this is Honda of America recalling 117,000 plus vehicles. Uh, this is their light pickup trucks. Uh, the rear view camera tailgate wire harness may fatigue and break after repeated opening and closings of the tailgate. <laughs> wow. wow. That's so terrible. Basically, uh, you use your car and uh, our wires are going to break. Um, on unbelievable and this they started observing this back in 2018 and uh yeah and they're just issuing the recall now literally last week yeah that's that one's kind of disappointing first of all the design just seems i don't don't know if they 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 retrofitted this the 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 camera wires or whatever it is into the system and that's why they're having the problem but you would think you would test your tailgates and wires out enough to know that there's not going to be a problem there before you sell them to the public. I remember when I worked for this uh, computer manufacturer, one of the things they would test on their laptops was opening and closing the laptop lid like thousands of times. It would be a machine that would open and close it to make sure the clutch and that hold the screen up wouldn't fail. Uh, Honda's got to do the same sort of thing. Come on. Yeah, and I'm just, you know... We keep seeing these dang rear visibility, rear view camera recalls every week. And it makes me wonder if the reg needs to be strengthened because nobody seems to be doing it quite right. I mean, every manufacturer, it feels like, has had one of these recalls. And it's generally due to most of them are not a mechanical issue like this. Most of them seem to be connected to the um central computing control platform whatever they're calling the main computer and, and and infotainment screen these days and all these vehicles that's where the glitches most often seem to happen um but again you know it's it's odd that we've seen you know, one or two of these every week for going on a number of weeks now in the podcast i think we've talked about it right and and we i think we've all agreed that the rearview camera is like our favorite feature on modern cars they're awesome yeah all right. I've got some uh, listener mail this week. It's exciting. We know. It's from our favorite listener, Jane. Uh, first question. What are the safety issues of electric car battery efficiencies in cold weather? Well, there's a couple of them. And thank you, Jane, for asking the question. Um, two things happen with electric car batteries in cold weather. One is they lose some of their capacity. So you can't drive as far on a uh, in, in the wintertime with an electric vehicle as you can in the summertime. They're just sensitive to temperature and that's just the way the chemistry works out. 
So you need to monitor that a little bit more carefully. Um, the but some of these thing, cars have uh, some sort of heat pumps that will warm the batteries up in cold weather. Is that right? I believe that's right. Yeah. But that, of course, takes energy. And where's that energy going to come from? All right. It's going to come from the battery. So there's a balance there as to how much you want to heat it to increase efficiency versus uh, how much you're going to lose by heating it. Um, the other issue is that you can't charge it as rapidly in cold weather as you can in warm weather. Again, because the chemistry is just works a little differently when the temperature uh, goes down. Particularly okay. in sub, it's particularly in sub-zero type weather, so uh, that's an issue. I'm, you know, and I can only assume that the car manufacturers take that into account when they put their charging circuitry in place. But, but I have no way of validating that assumption. So or, is- or you'll see Tesla start to sell heated garages. <laughs> I think this is a plus one in the favor of global warming. Uh, and uh, another battery question from Jane. Uh, why is it recommended when charging a phone not to let it go below 20% and not to charge it to 100%, just charge it to 80%? And does this concept apply to electric car batteries? And if so, why? I love this question. The answer is yes, it does apply to electric car batteries. And the why is a little bit harder to explain. But um, in lithium-ion batteries change their physical characteristics as their state of charge changes. So when you fully charge a battery, it swells. And so what happens with the battery inside of a case is if the case is too tight, then it's going to push against the side of the battery case and, and you know, that can, that can cause some problems. But the fundamental issue is that every battery has a finite life cycle. There's only a certain number of times you can recharge that battery. Um, at least every battery that we're talking about, lithium, lithium ion batteries. And so the deeper the discharge, in other words, how far down you get before you recharge it and how high you charge it. So, for example, if you go between 20 and 80, that's a cycle of 60%, right? If you go between 10 and 90, that's a cycle of 80%. So the, the high cycle charging limits the life of the battery more than the low cycle charging. So if you if you limit the number of cycles and you limit the extent of the cycles, your battery is going to last longer. That's the that's the fundamental issue. But chemical changes and physical changes take place when you completely discharge the battery and when you completely charge the battery up to 100%. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. I like this. And so as you said as the caveat, this is what applies to current lithium ion batteries and lithium ion batteries are what I have in my phone and what people have in their EVs. Does this hold true with future coming solid state batteries? You know, Toyota claims they'll have one on the market in a few years. I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, you could you have always hope. Okay. I, I could make something up. I'm good at that, but hey. I, in this case I won't because people might be listening. <laughs> People are definitely listening. And I want to thank you again, listeners, for listening. Um, you've made us one of the top 10% most downloaded podcasts on a weekly basis. How crazy is that? Hey. Listeners like you. And with becoming a great listener, telling all your friends how much you love this, writing in more questions, and donating to the Center for Auto Safety. It's tax deductible. Come on. I know you want to do it. Uh, that'd be great. And hey, thanks for joining us for another episode. We'll be back next week with more exciting auto safety news. 
Thank you for listening. Thanks, guinea pigs. <laughs> Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.